said, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. And he tells the parable. And then at the end of the parable, he asks the penetrating question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Jesus prophesied that as we move towards the end of the age, that believers will grow more. That their hearts will grow not blindly towards the Lord, but they'll be conformed more by the world. And that's one of the reasons our culture is so sick, that there are so many lukewarm Christians. And so he asked this question when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? Will he find the people of God passionately praying?
So chapter 2 of this prophet is very instructive in helping us to see the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Now some of you are here for the very first time, some of you are tuning in for the first time, and you're walking into this prophet's home, and I know that repetition is a great teacher. So let me bring us into the context of where we are. Here is the prophet God who is commissioned by God to go preach to the wicked Ninevites. Doesn't like the Ninevites and what they stand for, and so if you remember, he went in the opposite direction. God commissioned him to go to Nineveh. His message was simple: in yet forty days, in Nineveh, will be overthrown. Eight words in our English Bible, five words in the Hebrew text. And of course, God saw the wickedness of the people of Nineveh, and in spite of their wickedness, God still cared for the people of Nineveh. This message, yet forty days. Unless a person sees their sin, they'll never see their need for grace. Certainly, God could have just destroyed the city and wiped it off the map on the planet. But he chose not to. He did that with Sodom and Gomorrah. But he's giving these people an opportunity. There's still an inkling in their hearts for them to be able to repent. God cares for the Ninevites, God cares for lost people. So there's Jonah's commission, there's Jonah's message, and then in verse 3, if you remember, there was Jonah's response. But Jonah rose up to flee for his harshness from the presence of the Lord. So he went down to Joppa, found a ship which was going to Tarshish, and he there and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. From the presence of the Lord was Jesus Christ. Because the issue is not the place, it is the person, it is the Lord himself. Now, obviously, on the one hand, Jonah knows that you cannot flee from an omnipresent God. But on the other hand, he knows that he cannot preach to the wicked Ninevites at least 3,000 miles away. So just to refresh your memory, this map hopefully is becoming uh, stuck in your thinking. He lives in Israel in a place called Gathafir. He's three miles from Nazareth. Instead of heading northeast up into Nineveh, Goes down to Joppa today, modern day Tel Aviv. He finds a ship and he heads towards Tarshish, which is in southern Spain. Tarshish is in southern Spain. Now there are scholars today who are educated beyond their own intelligence, and they're coming out with all these other different places. Other than Gnostics, it's a well established fact, still in the minds of Jewish people to this day, and for the first 1900 years of Jewish history, that Tarshish Herodotus, which is 450 years before Christ, a great and reliable historian, also identifies Tarshish as being Spain. But for a Phoenician sailor, he was the furthest most part that you could sail. He was considered, in essence, the end of the earth. And that's where Jonah wants to go. He wants to put himself 3,000 miles away from Nineveh. Now, some have reasoned that Jonah fled because he was a coward. Some have said, well, he was a pagan Jew. They argued that he was a reflection of the people of Israel. Why should we care about the Gentiles? We are the chosen people of God. Forget the Gentiles and certainly forget the Ninevites. But there's nothing in the text that would indicate that or through the contemporary prophets. It's not bigotry. It's 
there's actually a picture of a seahorse in 1977. The Japanese ship called the Sumamaru uh, found this large bikini reptile off the coast of New Zealand. It was so big they needed a crane to hoist it up before they threw it back in. The Japanese biologists who came on board ended up examining this great creature. They said it was a place to get stars on an ancient water dinosaur. Now, dinosaurs were brought in as late as the 12th century by uh, Chinese, and there's one report dated in the 19th century by the Irish. You know, they may have been here longer than we realize, but you see, evolutionists want you to believe that they expired millions and millions of years ago. I don't happen to believe that the world is millions and millions of years old. I think it's between six and 10,000 years old. God created the world, he created the peoples of age. Adam and Eve were adults, and the trees in the garden were all grown mature from the very trees. But because they want to erase God and suppress the truth of God from their thinking, these are some of the explanations they come up with. And so the National Science Museum of Japan said, and I quote, it seems that these animals are not extinct at all. It's possible for only one to survive, but there must be. There could be more in, in the seas. So who knows what's working on the coast the next time you visit the coast? Be careful, too, when you look at They made a stamp on it. I have a picture of that stamp. It's a beautiful thing. So here's the point. The point is not that he could be swallowed by a great fish, but that he could be swallowed and survive it with all of his digestive I told you last time that if God had prepared him or that if he came to incest prepared, he had as appointed, prepared and carried his slightly different connotation in the 17th century. The word that is used is not God creating a fish just for this event, though he certainly could have. There is a word for when God creates out of nothing and nothing else. But this is not the word that God uses. God appoints a fish at just the right time. He prepares this fish to take Jonah into his stomach because that's where the air is. Look, I told you last time that if God had prepared Jonah to swallow a great whale, I would believe it. If that's what God did, look, the answer is not is this possible. The answer is not is there a fish big enough to take a human on board. The answer is how big is your God? See, your faith is determined by the size of your God. And though I cannot understand all the components of every miracle that's recorded in Scripture, God said it, I believe it. That settles it, and it settles it whether you believe it or not, because it's true. Now, when you think about it, there's really a twofold miracle as it unfolds in the narrative. First, that Jonah could survive three days and three nights without any of those gastric juices destroying him. Verse 17 clearly indicates that he had in the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow him, and there he was in the stomach of the fish three days and three nights. The second miracle was that God appointed and prepared a fish to be on the spot at just the right time to take his prophet in his stomach. That's the miracle. By the way, this is not the first miracle that God does with a fish. You want to get interesting? 
this danger over his boat and down into the sea. Let's go get that sand. Let's go get that sand. I want you to go cast your line into the water. The first fish you pull off is going to have a sand. You pay your tax. Our God is a great God. He appoints this fish. Fish, come in here. I've got a prophet. You need to pick up the fish. Because our God is sovereign over his entire creation. Now, with that said, I don't want to give all of our attention to what happens on the outside of the ocean as much as I want you to see this morning what God did on the inside in Jonah's heart. Again, when you put these verses together, you see a picture between God's sovereignty and whether it's fish responsibility or human responsibility. God is over it all. The Lord commanded the fish, we're going to see, dropping down to chapter 2, verse 10. He commanded the fish to vomit him up on dry land. And so he appoints the fish, he commands the fish to swallow Jonah, and then he commands the fish to spit up Jonah. This is a God who is sovereign, who is at work. You think about what God does in the world today. Don't want to miss the human responsibility, the part that you and I are called to play. Think about the Great Commission. We can rag on Jonah for his unwillingness to go and preach to the Ninevites. And God has commanded us to take the gospel and make disciples. I told you that verse was abused about 70 years ago by a Christian campus organization, and they made three new discipleships. So now we have all these Christians in America. I just leave my little Bible study and I'm doing discipleship. That's not what the verse says. It has nothing to do with the verse. Make disciples as you go. Make converts. That's what God told us to do. We wonder why America is in such deep, desperate shape today. Because we put our light under the basket. We stop being salt. We stop sharing Jesus Christ as a way of life. That's human responsibility. Will of the divine sovereignty of God, will the Great Commission get fulfilled? Absolutely. Jesus said this in the Olivet Discourse. This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached to the whole world with the testimony of all the nations. And then the end will come. God is going to do it. It will be completed ultimately during the tribulation period. 144,000 Jewish converts, two men, probably Moses and Elijah on the Temple Mount, in the kingdom of God, in every tribe, tongue, and nation. It will be complete. The question is, what part will you have? What part will I have? So sandwiched between Jonah 1.17, the Lord appoints the fish to swallow Jonah, and 2.10, where he commands the fish to spit up Jonah, is a picture of human responsibility in prayer. So with that said, let's look at the prayer. Using your note-taking outline, we want to begin this morning with a setting, with a setting of Jonah's prayer. Again, in verse 1, then, Jonah prayed to the Lord, Here's God from the stomach of the fish. Then, then when, after Jonah had been swallowed, I mean, what else are you going to do if you're in the belly of the fish that prayer? God knew he needed to create a situation to break Jonah down. Make Jonah depend upon the plan that he had for his life. And sometimes God will put us in desperate situations where the only way we can look is 
that. He certainly doesn't always want to do that. Paul writes to the church of Rome that the blessing of God can lead us to repentance. And sometimes God has to use desperate situations to bring about repentance. And so when he gets bottom, so to speak, C.S. Lewis wrote a classic little book called The Problem of knowledge of the works of C.S. Lewis. I think it's probably my favorite book out of all the books I've read by Lewis. And he just reminds the reader that he's casting difficulties in bodies and human experience that God uses sometimes to have. The classic line of the book is this God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pain. His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. If I were to tell you that for the next 365 days, you will not have a single problem in your life, how much would you depend on See, God uses difficulties to grow us into Christ. It's part of being a human, and it is certainly part of being a Christian. You remember what the Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians 1 and verse 29? For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Oh, the prosperity theologians, they missed that verse completely. It's important for us to suffer. Why? Because all that desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. God grants to those people who believe to suffer. When was the last time you thanked God for suffering? Jesus promised in the world you will have calypsis. It's speaking about persecution. Not just heartache, not just trials. All tribulations are trials, not all trials are tribulations. In the world you will have calypsis, tribulation. It speaks of the hostility of a godless world against the people of God. But be of great courage, I have overcome the world. We studied in the book of James. Consider it all joy, my brother, not yet, but when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces an endurance for you to render steadfastness for you to render patience. You see, we all want the product, but we don't always want the process. But the process is what God uses to conform us to His Son. We noted last time that suffering comes in at least three different ways. It's unfolded for us in Scripture. There is common suffering. That's the kind of suffering that comes because we live in a fallen world. So Christians and non-Christians alike suffer heart attacks, tsunamis, hurricanes, and the like. And so we live in a fallen world. But beyond common suffering, we also saw that there is Christian suffering. Peter speaks of those who suffer as Christians. Jesus said, if the world hates you, know that he hated you before he hated you. There's the suffering that comes because you are living a godly life. And you reflect to that unbeliever what they should be. They are convicted, and sometimes they will kick back against you because of it. But don't despair. There are many of those people who will kick back against you will ultimately be converted. But then beyond Christian suffering and common suffering, there's carnal suffering. Carnal suffering is the suffering that leads people to because of someone else's sin. Husband picks up his wife, the truck driver crosses over the lane, kills an innocent person. More often, carnal suffering because it happens because of our own sin. And when it happens because of our sin, and we're a believer, the promise of 
last time from Proverbs, quoted in the book of Hebrews, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are recruited by him. For those in the Lord love you discipline, and he's supported every son whom he receives. Here's Jonah, he's living in sin, so he has to spend three days and three nights on a foam rubber mattress because of his disobedience. So whatever it takes, for God to get our attention, he waits. God periodically puts us in a different kind of situation of trouble so that we'll call out to him and pray. But that should not be the pattern of devotion to prayer. We need to live in a spirit of prayer. Unfortunately for many of us, prayer is like a parachute. It's good to have in case of emergency. So emergency happens, pull the red cord of prayer, and hopefully everything will be fine. God wants us to pray as a way of life. He wants us to pray when everything is good, when we're in the brightness of God's blessing, walking in the light so that when we're in the dark, we continue to fellowship with the Lord. I came into my house last week, and every light outside and inside was turned off, stopping on. And I had to struggle with my meditation. They didn't walk, no moonlight. I went into the house, but I could walk into that house without getting this single light. I knew where everything was. Listen, when you walk in the light, your pattern when you are in dark times, being desperate times, will be to continue to pray. Now, that's the setting of Jonah's prayer. Beyond the setting of Jonah's prayer, I want you to think of it the substance of Jonah's prayer. The substance of Jonah's prayer. If you will study this prayer carefully, you will discover that he recounts what happened to him from the moment that he threw him overboard. Look at verse 2. He said, I called out of my distress to the Lord, and he answered me. I called for help from the depths of Sheol. You heard my voice. The depths of Sheol, literally the belly of Sheol, is not a reference to the fish's stomach. There's a different word for that found in Jonah 1.17. As we're going to see in a moment, it first recounts his experience when he was initially thrown overboard. And he describes it like Sheol. Now, Sheol is an important theological word that Jesus needs to know. Sheol is the Hebrew word that's used to describe the place of the grave. If you were reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament, they would use the word Hades. Now, we use the word Hades, and this will play on your mind a little bit, and we use it to come in negatively. But actually, Hades and Sheol had two dimensions. There was a positive dimension to Hades or Sheol, and there was a negative dimension to Hades or Sheol. The positive dimension is called righteous Sheol. And so Jesus, in Luke 16, tells a parable. Don't say it's not a parable, because it's someone who means that Lazarus went home. If it is a parable, it's the only parable with someone's name in it, but it doesn't change the meaning at all. So I think it has the characteristics of a parable. Laid out aside, he describes the truth, the land dies, it's rich, and it goes to unrighteous Sheol, to a place of suffering, to a place of torment. He goes there not because he's rich, he goes there because he's an unbeliever. The text indicates he's an unbeliever. He said, look, you have Lazarus come up from the dead, if you see someone raised from the dead, they'll my five brothers who haven't repented will repent and give me all about you. That's why he's an unrighteous Sheol, because he's lost. Lazarus. He's in righteous Sheol. He is in a place called Abraham's bosom. It's also called paradise. 
is a place of blessing. And he's there not because he's not what he is like, he's like this is like some kind of reverse karma. No, he's there because he was a believer who walked with God and had his faith in the living God. Now, the Bible teaches that when Jesus is dead, remember saying in the Old Testament, heaven's gate in the fullest sense, what we call the New Jerusalem, the Father's house. That's not where believers went. They went to Sheol, right to Sheol. It was not until five days when Jesus dies on the cross, pays for our sins, proves his ability when he risen from the dead, when he ascends to heaven and sees his glory.
Jonah literally died. And it's substantially God is baptized that position. They quote what Jesus said to the Pharisees when they denied his true miracle. And they asked for another sign. And he said, If you want an adulterous generation to raise to a sign, and no sign will be given to both of the sign of Jonah the prophet. Said, Dad, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And so they conclude from the illustration that Jonah must have died. And then on the third day, God raised him. And by the way, we'll look at the chronology of three days, three nights in our next chapter. God willing. But it's not necessarily for Jonah to have died to have made a complete picture of what Jesus is saying any more than it was necessary for Isaac to have died up on top of Mount Moriah. And yet the Bible tells us he's a type, he's an illustration. He's a picture of Christ. It was as good as that. Abraham was getting ready to plunge the knife into his chest when the angel of the Lord intervened. He was as healthy as a horse. And yet he is a picture of substitution. He is a picture of a father giving his uniquely blessed son. And so here's Jonah. He's as good as dead. And so in that sense, he pictures Christ. Look at verse 3. Of Jonah too, for you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the time engulfed me, all your breakers and billows passed over me. Now, this is a pivotal verse, and it may be very, very helpful to some of us as we think through prayer. You might want to circle in your Bible the second person crowd to you and you are. In fact, as we work through the chapter, you should circle it. Some of you are looking at me, get your pen out, circle it. You know, Lord, you know, Lord, I promise, stay with me. For you cast me into deep. Your breakers and billows cast over me. And so this will help us unlock the meaning of the verse in terms of what is unfolding. Now, let me take you back to Jonah 1 and verse 15. The prophet there wrote, But they, so they, meaning the sailors, so they picked up Jonah, threw him into the sea, and the sea stopped its raging. But then we read here in verse 2, For you, Yahweh, had cast me into the deep. So let's turn Jonah overboard. God is in. You see, when Jonah writes his testimony, he understood that the sailors were simply instruments in the hand of a sovereign God. You see this unfold all the way through Scripture. For instance, in the Gospels, and in the Acts of the Apostles, who killed, who crucified the Lord Jesus? Well, Peter stands up shortly after the miracle of Pentecost. He says, Men of Israel, you nailed him, that is Jesus, to a cross. And then as he continues the sermon, he not only includes Jews, but Gentiles. He said in, in Acts 2 and verse 27, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose and still another passage of Scripture, beyond the people in Jesus' literal day as he walked on the earth, you and I are indicted with the crucifixion of Christ, all of humanity. Isaiah will write when he was pierced through for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. So please do not get caught up in this anti-Semitic recycled controversy that the Jews committed deicide and they murdered the Lord Jesus. That's what some of the reformers do 
and they spoke some wicked things about the people of Israel. So on the one hand, the Jews crucified him. On the other hand, the Gentiles crucified him. On the other hand, you and I crucified him, but beyond that, even God crucified him. Isaiah will say he was smitten of God and afflicted. He will write, the Lord was pleased to Christ. So who killed Jesus? God and man. And God used human agents to accomplish his work. So don't think that God is limited, that he needs to come down here with a physical battle and take you to the woodshed to exercise his discipline. God has many creative ways in which to get our attention. Maybe you've learned this already in your Christian experience. I've seen pagan employers review Christian employees because of either age dishonesty or more often than not laziness or less than excellence in the work that they are doing. One of the major principles that is found in this book that I want us to be sensitive to is the, the balance between divine sovereignty and human responsibility. Let's read further into verse 3. For you have cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the current engulfed me. All your breakers and billows cast over me. The waves are all over Jonah, and the current is moving him, and God's breakers and billows are swallowing him up. Verse 4. So I said, I have been expelled from your sight. Nevertheless, I will look again toward your holy temple. Now, why did he look again toward the holy temple? Because it was in the tabernacle, later in the temple of God, where the three kind of glory of God would come. And three times a day, you saw Daniel turning towards the temple here in uh, some airport, or maybe even at a Aircraft 30,000 feet above the earth. You will see Orthodox Jews, and as part of that flight, as it always is, if you go from here to Israel, they will turn to the temple and they will pray in that direction. That's what Jonah's doing. Now, was he literally ignoring himself? I'm not so sure, but metaphorically, at least in his heart, he is doing what every righteous Jew would do. They would turn towards the temple of God and pray. Now remember, there was a time earlier when he had a way out. In Jonah 1 and verse 11, what should we do to you that this thing may become God for us? God was giving him a way out. He could have said, turn the ship around. Take me back to Joppa. Take me back there. I'm going to go to Nineveh to see what instantly have become God. But that's not, of course, what he does. And so... God says, you want to play hardball? Okay. Throw him overboard. He is exercising divine discipline on his offense. Sometimes God doesn't know who his people can say. We looked at it last time. You remember 1 Corinthians 11? For this reason, what reason? Because some of the morning men Open rebellion. For this reason, many of us are weak and sick in a numbers group. They look a whole lot of sickness coming to the fallen world. But some sickness, some weakness, some strength that is early death comes from the discipline and the of God and 
so he goes on to say, if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Identify 
the flag of transgenderism and homosexuality and all kinds of wickedness? Some prayer is an abomination. And some prayer, when it comes down to believers, God doesn't listen to If I regard wickedness in my heart, the Lord will not hear. We looked at this last time, not if I sin, for we all stumble in many ways. But if I regard, if I cling to, if I hold on to, if I cherish iniquity in my heart, the Lord doesn't hear. I say, look at it this way, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have given his face for you so that he does not hear. Speaking of believers, God not hearing our prayer. Why? Because we're holding on to sin. And sometimes it is just very subtle and very small. The reason some of us have no power with God is because it's compromised our hearts. You go home at night, you watch the bills. Well, it's just a little sex, just a little swearing, just a little courtesy. You're listening on godly music. Whatever it is that has transpired in your life, you know, and if you cling to it, you hold on to it. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. He is not talking about positional righteousness. Every child of God has that. He's thinking about experiential righteousness where our heart is in sync with the Lord. Now notice verse 8. Those who regard vain idols forsake their faithfulness. In other words, faithfulness uh, here in the ESV. ESV is a record steadfast law. Again, it's that word tested. God's unfailing law. Those who regard vain idols, they, they forsake what they thought was a loving God when there is no such God. They abandon, they forsake those idols. Vain idols, if you do it for reading the American standard version that was produced in 1904, that was the predecessor to the new American standard that came out in 
sacrifice to you for the voice of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. Jonah says you will sacrifice to the voice of thanksgiving, which represents the Lord's praise. The Bible says, but the redeemed of the Lord say so, who can redeem From the hand of our adversary, nothing will be but your lips are not enough. You can give God lips of this about heart service. Jesus said, according to Isaiah, this people honored me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. In the original context, then the Lord said, because this people brought here with their words and honored me with their lips of it, but they removed their hearts far away from me, and their reverence for me consists of tradition by my own. If we offer something with our lips and it doesn't translate into our wills down in our That which I have vowed on the Now, what's Jonah's vow? God called him to be his spokesman to the Nineveh. He's saying, God, you called me to preach to those, those wicked people. And I will go wherever you want me to go to say whatever you want me to pray, I'm yours. He makes a vow, and a vow, when you think about it, simply means a promise. Every time I perform a wedding, I always quote Ecclesiastes 5, where Solomon wrote, When you make a vow to God, do not be like the Canaan, for he takes no delight in sinners. Take what you vow, it is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. So when you make a vow to God, God doesn't approve that. That's why you take your gifts. Beyond any of this, is he clean? That's why he said in Matthew 12, and I say to you that every careless word that one shall speak, it shall bring on counsel in the day of judgment. So for Jonah, the, the purpose to keep his vow, he is repenting of his sin. Again, I will sacrifice to you in the course of thanksgiving. That which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. If Jonah had always said, I will sacrifice to you, then that would have been incomplete repentance and nothing would have happened. If he had always said, I will sacrifice to you with the voice of thanksgiving, that would not have represented repentance, and there would have been no response. But when Jonah says, that which I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation is from the Lord. That's real repentance. Jonah was not thankful because he walked on dry land. He wasn't there yet. He wasn't thankful because he hadn't been drowned. He doesn't know what's going to happen. But he thanked God that he was worthy of his obedience. And he said, God, whatever happens, I vow in my heart to do what you say. And that's how Jonah is God's obedience to God. That brings us
do not wait until we are in a crisis to speak with us. We study in chapter 1, we have a fellowship of all the times that Joseph is going to go to but not to pray. It's not until he's in the total crisis that he prays. Remember, first thing in chapter 10, Romans 15, other passages remind us that the Old Testament was written for our instruction on who we have to be things are written on as an example, Paul said, that we might not repeat the mistakes that they made. And so we need to recognize that if we are born again believers, Satan will do everything in his power to keep you off of your knees. If you remember on that occasion, actually twice in the beginning of his ministry, the end of his ministry, Jesus went into the temple and he cleansed it. And he said, my house shall be called a house of prayer, and made it a den of merchandise. My house, the temple there in Jerusalem, shall be called a house of prayer. Now just remember, God doesn't have a house anymore. This isn't God's house. This is the meeting place of you and God's church. You are God's house. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Is it you who you have for God? And this temple is the house of prayer. Now somewhere along the line, Jonah got cold. Not until the crisis comes that he gets caught. Don't let that happen to you. Don't be going down in flames when you cry out to God. Now, you can do just about anything without prayer, but you can't do anything that is worth it, that is fruitful in glorifying the Lord when he gets all the credit for your reward for it. Unless you pray. Second, my Lord, we must affirm that salvation is from the Lord. In my judgment, this may be the most important statement in the whole book. After all, it's the theme of the entire Bible. It's hard to miss the point that Jonah was coming to God not as a Jew deserving some kind of special privilege or concession. He's coming as a sinful human being. And that's what he needed, and that's what we need. It's called grace. And salvation is a point. It's not something we pull off. It's not an end doing a work for God. It's God doing a work for him. He knew that he deserved death. But God loved him anyway. And you and I, we deserve eternal wrath. Unless we come to God through Christ, who is our salvation and no one else, we're at his end. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Exactly where you are. He knows what to see you in, what you're longing to do, 